Well, um, this morning we're talking about uncertainty, and I, I don't know if I have to go into great detail on that, um, because to say that, that these days are uncertain would be a, a, a massive understatement. Um, a friend of mine uh, sent me a picture recently, and I thought I'd share it with you uh, if you could pull that up. Those of you who don't get it, now imagine being last year, and apart from maybe the, dog, the angels aren't very good, and they've filled their seats with teddy bears and cutouts, it'd be hard to understand this. But to us, it makes sense, right? Because obviously no one's at the baseball field. Okay. Pandemic. Worldwide travel bans. Quarantine mask-wearing, working from home, uh, school from home, uh, cancel culture, statue-destroying, race riots, extreme violence, curfews. Uh, these things are happening with, with such speed that it's hard to keep up. Most days have uncertainty. These days seem to be covered in them. So the question is, how do we live in uncertain days? Well, thankfully, we don't have to watch the news for answers. It's here in the letter from James. And while these last sections, as David was reading, they they can sound very uh, disjointed and disconnected, as if James is just writing thoughts down on paper, and it, it certainly can feel like that, I think there is some threads that hold this together, and it's my job to navigate us uh, through these verses. Uh, But I will admit easily that none of that is possible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds, and it would be unwise of us, foolish of us, to continue on without asking Him to do His work this morning. So will you pray with me? Father, all of us are battling uncertainties, and yet we know and trust that you are our one certainty in life, our anchor, our refuge, our hope. And so, Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that your Spirit would come and dwell amongst us in this place, that he would enliven in us these words from your Scripture that we would hear, receive, and respond. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what is it that James wants us to know about this life, and and how does he say we are to live it? First, James wants us to know that life is uncertain. As we noted at the beginning, that's not necessarily our problem today. We, we're very, uh, we're very hyper aware that there's uncertainty. But here's my question to you: What has been your response, your reaction to all of the uncertainty that we have faced this year? Has it driven you to desire more control or less control over your life and your circumstances? 
Has it given you a perspective that life is short? Or has it made you live as if you are invincible? Like the university students who held COVID parties to see who might get it. Have the events and the uncertainty of this year made you more aware of the injustice in our world? Have the events and uncertainty of this year revealed the nature of suffering in general across all people? Because these are the things that James is pointing out in his letter. We are, we are just being confronted with them in a greater way. Everyone's plans were changed this year. Everyone's uh, plans were, were, were ripped out from under them. Travel plans, canceled. Uh, going to the office, closed. Going to school, virtual. So what has been your reaction to that lack of control you now have? Because James is telling his readers to stop buying into the lie that we are in control of our own lives. In the sense that we go and we make our plans and and, and we presume that everything will go as we planned or, or as we anticipate it will. Verse 13, now listen. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know what will happen? You you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. I'd like to meet this person who was thinking, well, we'll go move to that city in 2020 and we'll uh, start up a business and we'll live our lives there. Listen, he's not saying do not make plans. He's not saying stay at home and and live in fear. He's saying the problem is that in our planning, we often forget that life is uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We act like we can plan our lives uh, when we don't even have control over the next few minutes. We put ourselves in the driver's seat when we live that presumptive life. And it has been like this since the garden, right? You can be like God. You can be in control of your own destiny. You, you don't have to live dependently or, or submissively. Sometimes we begin to think like the little boy at the birthday party of another, that it is all about us. And the fact is, it's not all about us. Now that all that control has been taken, what is your reaction? Then James goes further, verse 14. What is your life? (laughs) What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Look at how short Your life is. Not only are our lives unpredictable, they are also short. How many of you can name your great-great-grandparents? That's only four generations. It's, It's not a tremendously long amount of time. The mist that appears, and then just like that, it vanishes I'll ask you again, have the events and and the uncertainty of this year given you a perspective that life is short? 
Or has it made you live as if you are invincible? At this point, we want to say, ouch, James. Uh, Ease up, brother. Some of us are a little fragile. But James wants us not to live in denial, but to face reality. He continues on in chapter 5 with another, now listen. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Here we run into an issue. Well, we actually run into a lot of issues. But here we run into a particular issue, and here's the issue. Is James talking to the non-Christian outside world when he addresses these people? And I say that because a lot of the commentaries disagree on who he's talking to here. Some argue that um, there is reason to believe that he's talking to the outside world and that uh, in verse 7 he hammers on the injustices of the rich over the poor and then he says a transition of be patient therefore brothers. But I I think it would be unwise uh, to leave it that way. And I agree with those who, who, who think it's for everyone because James wrote this letter to all the churches and there most certainly would have been wealthy people in those churches. And because there are injustices in our world that we are very well aware of and just because we, uh, just as we can be guilty of wanting control in our lives as in the, the previous section that he just went through, We can be guilty of injustice towards others. We can use money as our savior. It gives us a a, a false sense of self-sufficiency. Again, the connection with the Sermon on the Mount. I I still can't believe the timing of all this. I started James when Dad was doing uh, the Beatitudes, and he's going to continue Sermon on the Mount teaching next week. But, But again, the connection with the Sermon on the Mount in James Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth that can be destroyed by moth and rust, but store up treasures in heaven that moth and rust cannot destroy. This this makes me wonder about our connectivity as a body of believers. If you go to some of the, the rural and the poorer parts of the world, and you find Christian fellowship, it is so deep. (laughs) it's, it's, It's vitality. It is part of their life. My brother and I had the opportunity to go to Morocco, and in this little house church, these people started gathering together, and I assumed they were all related to each other. It was like a family reunion. And they said, well, it's a family reunion of sorts. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then they had to shut all the windows and doors so that the neighbors wouldn't hear them and then call the secret police. And so I just wonder, I'm just thinking, 
How much does our money and our wealth and our trinkets and these other things that we surround our lives with, how much do they actually create a blockade between us and true fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ? They create distraction. They occupy our time. They occupy our energy. Anyway, not only is James saying not to let your money and your possessions possess you, He's also highlighting the injustices in this life. Yet another element leading to uncertainty in this life. He tells those who are wealthy the guilt that comes with carrying out injustice, which stems from that hunger and that desire for wealth and possessions. And so you take advantage of the workers. But he's also showing us that This world is full of injustice. So let me ask you again. Have the events and the uncertainty of this year made you more aware of the injustice of our world? And now I might add, of your own carrying out of injustice. And that could apply to any area of life. Then verses 7 to 20, James looks at suffering in general and sickness. And, and there's no denying in, the, in this letter of James that, that there's no hint that we will escape the troubles in life once we've become a follower of Christ. Right? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of many kinds. He's not saying... Uh, Brothers, there will be no trials of any kinds now that you put your trust in Christ. That's just not true. But what we've been given is a new lens through which we can see life and we can understand the trials that come that we face. So what do we do then? Now, we know, we know that these are realities. What do we do? How, how do we live in this uncertain, short, and difficult life? This is the most happy and upbeat sermon I've ever done. how good it is that we get to remember good things. First, James wants us to remember who is sovereign. We've already seen that James says that this life is uncertain and short. We can make plans, but, but we really have no idea what's going to happen even a few minutes from now. How shall we live then? Should we go with the flow and, and, and refuse to make plans? No, James says, here is what we should do. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Again, James is not against planning. But James says that our planning should always realize that God may have other plans. He's not saying that we should just tack on this pious-sounding phrase to whatever we say. Oh, if the Lord wills. No, no, no. It's bigger than that. He's asking us to acknowledge our limitations, to acknowledge our ignorance, to acknowledge our frailty, to acknowledge our dependence. And that God 
has the ultimate say about what's going to happen in our lives. We can trust God because he's good and he is sovereign. Kent Hughes, who was a professor at Westminster Seminary, he says this. This phrase, if God wills, is to be the constant refrain of our hearts as we conduct the affairs of our lives. If God wills, should be, uh, must be written over the student's plans. The choice of a, a marriage partner, future education, all everyday activities. Older people need to say from the heart, if God wills, I will spend my time. If God wills, my children will become. If God wills, I will take up this ministry. If God wills, I will wake up tomorrow. All of us should have this heart attitude. It's only when we comprehend the sovereignty and goodness of God that we'll be able to handle the things we cannot control. It is only when we comprehend the sovereignty and goodness of God that we'll be able to handle the things we cannot control because behind the seeming randomness of life is a God who is in control even when we are not. And I think of the song we were singing, that he is sovereign, he's in control, and he, in his mind is our good. But I think we sometimes think our good is defined by us. We know what's good for us, and so God needs to work to that end. But sometimes his good is very different from what we define as our good. I like what... Wendell Berry writes in one of his novels, he says, I can't look back from where I am now and feel that I have been very much in charge of my life. I've made plans enough, but I see now that I've never lived by plan. Nearly everything that has happened to me has happened by surprise. All the important things have happened by surprise, and whatever has been happening usually has happened before I had a time to expect it. And so I have, uh, and so when I have thought I was in my story or in charge of it, I really have only been at the edge of it, carried along. Is this because we are in an eternal story that is happening only partly in time? We are part of an eternal story that we do not control. Let's never think that we control the, the wholeness of it. Let's understand that God is weaving together an eternal story. It's like the image, you know, when they talk about the people who weave the carpets and you look at the back end of the carpet and you think, what a mess. Has this guy ever done this before? And then you come around to the other side and it's beautiful. Let us trust him in the everyday details of our lives because he knows what he is doing. That's the first way we can handle uncertain times. Trust God because our days are not uncertain to him. Second, trust God's justice patiently. Verses 7 to 9 of chapter 5, and I'm going to read from the ESV. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until 
it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We've already established that life is full of injustice. How can we put up with all the oppression and inequity in our lives? It's still a question that we wrestle with today. We live in a world of injustice. And James has just talked about, uh, finished talking about the way that the day laborers are exploited by the rich. It's wrong, and James is very clear and speaks very clearly about it. On a more personal level, some of you know what it's like to experience types of injustice. You know what it's like to be wrongfully terminated. You've experienced uh, your name being dragged through the mud. You've had unjust accusations against you. You know what it's like to be maligned and mistreated. What does James say we should do? He's already spoken against the injustice, and, and, and we should do that as well. As children of God, we we don't stand for injustice. We stand for justice, and we want to see it executed. But even then, we're still going to continue to experience injustice and oppression. And so James gives us one of the most powerful resources that has helped some of the most oppressed groups in the world to not only survive but to live with hope. What is it? is the justice of God. God will bring justice for the oppressed. He will stand against the oppressor. He will right all wrongs. Every case of injustice will eventually be brought into his courtroom where justice will finally and completely be done. If you're looking for a central strategy against bitterness in your heart, it is to rest in the truth that God will see that justice is done. But let that still be a warning to you. Romans chapter 12 tells us never to avenge ourselves, but leave it to God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. For us, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who suffered and and was eventually executed by Nazi Germany, when asked how it was possible to feel love for such a people, he replied, it is only when God's wrath and vengeance are hanging as grim realities over the heads of one's enemies that something of what it means to love and forgive them can touch our hearts. Suffering requires patience, a a, a patience for final judgment, final justice, a patience for all suffering in life, a patience with one another, which James makes a particular point of when he says in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. 
and he gives us the, the imagery of, of Job and, and, and the prophets that given as illustrations of patience and, and steadfastness. And it always makes me think of Hebrews chapter 11 of all the by faith people listed out. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to say, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the mighty in war, put army, foreign armies to flight. And some of the ones we don't hear about as much, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They were steadfast and patient because they knew and they trusted in the character of God. Listen, Job was not clued in to the conversation that was taking place between God and Satan. He didn't know all that was taking place. That the, the fact that that Satan actually had no real power other than what was allowed him by God. But Job knew the character of God, and he trusted in the character of God. If we are going to grow in spiritual maturity as James wants us to, then we need to grow in our knowledge of God's character. And then in verse 12... James gives this very direct statement about not swearing by heaven or earth, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And it feels a little bit misplaced. But essentially, just because times are uncertain, just because there are great injustices that are going on in our world, it is not an excuse for the believers to lack integrity. Let your word be your word. Be people of integrity when everyone else is doing and saying whatever it takes to get by. First Peter says that we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, being prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us, and we do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For that is the Christ-like model. And finally, commit to your community. These last verses are... Obviously, a call to the Christian community to pray for, to love, uh, and to support one another. And what a great ending to this series. The, the reminder of the importance of our church community. The vital role we play in one another's lives. 
Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Call the elders to pray and anoint with oil. Is any one of you, uh, anyone among you wandering from the truth? Go after them. We need to be praying for one another. Days like today's are beyond uncertain. What greater need could we have than the fellowship and the community of people whose lives have been transformed by the grace of God? than the lives of people who understand and have made a commitment to Christ and his church. Because we cannot grow in spiritual maturity on our own. We cannot fight the enemies that we talked about last week, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We cannot fight them on our own. We have to be supporting one another. We need to be confessing our sins to one another. We need to be holding one another accountable. Otherwise, we will look like the rest of the world during this crisis, grasping at straws, trying to control the uncontrollable, having an incorrect view of our longevity, contributing to injustice, and working it all out in isolation. Listen to these words from Justin Martyr, an early church theologian, in a letter written to Emperor Antonius Pius, we formerly rejoiced in uncleanness of life, but now love only chastity. Before we used, uh, we used the magic arts, but now we dedicate ourselves to the true and unbegotten God. Before we loved money and possessions more than anything, but now we share what we have and to everyone who is in need. Before, we hated one another and killed one another and would not eat with those of another race. But now, since the manifestation of Christ, we have come to a common life and pray for our enemies and try to win over those who hate us without just cause. We may live among dangerous enemies, as we talked about last week, in the world and the flesh and the devil. And we may live in some of the most uncertain of days. But we worship a sovereign God whose character is good. We worship a God who works out his perfect justice in his timing. We worship a God of grace who not only provided himself as a sacrifice which atones for our sins but he has also provided for us a community in which we can grow and learn more about this sovereign, gracious God of truth and justice. A a, a community where we are loved, cared for, and prayed for because we are loved by him. So let's rejoice in that as we pray together. God, we confess that uncertain days are not fun. They are wearisome. They sap our energy. 
They take up our time and attention. And yet you have called us not to be focused on these things, not to wear the glasses of our circumstances and see only things through our circumstances. But you've given us gospel lenses. You've given us the ability to understand that your good may not perfectly align with what we consider our good. But we know that you are good, and so we trust you. We trust you in your sovereignty. We trust you in your goodness. And though we are tempted to go back to the things of this world, and we are tempted to put our efforts in our own flesh, in our abilities, I pray that this letter from James would be a reminder to us that we can trust you with it. We can trust you with all of it. Forbid that we go back to those things. And oh, what a reminder when we get to gather together as a community of believers, reminding one another of these truths, holding one another apart, that we would not go the way of the world, but that we would be other, different, sanctified, as you have called us to be. So, Father, fill our hearts with your words of truth. Would they penetrate deep down that we would be a praying community, a godly community whose prayers are heard. Father, that we would ultimately place the trust in you. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.